0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest for this episode is none other than Dr. Nicholas Christakis. Since this is a podcast about the pandemic, I'm sure Nicholas doesn't need any introduction, but all the same. He is a physician and sociologist at Yale University, where he is the Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science. He is the author of several major books, which include Death Foretold, Connected, Blueprint, and most recently, Apollo's Arrow, which is on the COVID-19 pandemic. As brought up at the end of the episode, the paperback is now out for Apollo's Arrow, so you can go pick that up at all fine bookstores everywhere. Now, I can't help but point out that my episode with... Dr. Christakis comes right on the coattails of a major podcast episode he just did on Sam Harris's Making Sense program. I suppose, in one sense, it's not a bad thing. It's going to possibly draw more attention to this program and this episode, which I thoroughly enjoyed. But I sort of feel like I'm playing at a music festival in a local ACDC cover band, and I have to play after Miles Davis. So I did the best I could with all of that on my mind. So anyway, with within this conversation, uh, we go over, on top of uh, his book Apollo's Arrow, the Omicron variant, antiviral treatments, the vaccines, and the widespread social mania that has occurred throughout, well, the entirety of the pandemic and just seems to keep on trucking and growing. So this was a absolutely fantastic conversation and a great opportunity for me. And I hope you really get something out of it and enjoy it. Cheers, guys. Okay, first, I got to start off and say I just I'm very honored to have you here, and I've been very much looking forward to this. And uh, You've definitely been a complete voice of sanity throughout the entire pandemic, so just thanks for everything you've done and all all the great information that you've put out there, and thanks for your absolutely fantastic book, uh, Apollo's Arrow, which I'm going to get back to at the very end. Um, Let's start off on a lighter note. Not only are you an expert in sociology, and you're a physician but you also have some expertise in how we are naming the variants. Uh, once we um, get to Omega, what, what are we going to do? <laughs> are we just going to have like Alpha
1: Alpha and going from there? I don't know. I don't know uh, what's going to happen. You know, when they, uh, when they first said they were going to use the Greek alphabet, which is only 24 letters, I joked online that they should use a Cambodian alphabet, which I looked up. It is the longest alphabet it has 74 letters. And, um, so I didn't understand why they were going with the Greek alphabet because it was pretty clear we were going to have use them up, and then they had to skip some because we were at the mu variant, mm-hmm. and they had to skip nu, the ni, the Greek n, because um, because it sounds in English like it would be pronounced like the new variant, it would confuse people, and then the one after that was the she variant or xi in Greek. And, uh, and uh, it's spelled XI Like Xi Jinping And mm-hmm. I guess WHO was worried that they would Offend the Chinese or something Which is again a stupid reason to But they, they skipped it And I think well, they won't do the Omega either Now that you mention it because that really sounds cataclysmic you know, It's not like Armageddon So we're using up letters very fast Like we already only had 24 And we've taken three out of commission So that gives us 21 and we're two thirds of the way to the end So I don't know what they're going to do I actually don't know I don't know if they're formal conventions. So I actually, I don't know the answer to your question, what they'll do if they get to the end, there, there might, there might be an answer. So when some, when people listen to this, it maybe someone can tweet at us or email us and let us know.
0: Okay. I think it'll probably just be alpha strikes back or something like that. <laughs> they will just go from there. Yeah.
1: Alpha prime. They, they may do that beta prime. Yeah. That's actually a good suggestion.
0: Yeah. There we, there we go. We figured it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so, uh, well, pertaining to one of those letters, uh, uh, all the hype right now is, is the omicron variant and it seems like a lot of people have made up their mind some are saying you know this is the, the doom and some have just surmised that it's it's going to be extremely mild and this will be the end of the pandemic it'll sweep through everybody will get the sniffles and then we'll have herd immunity and and all that what, what are you finding is um the, the most likely outcome from what I I imagine possibly little data that you've you've been able to accrue. Yeah, I mean, I think what's going on—it's
1: difficult to be certain. I mean, we have much more data now. You know, two or three weeks into the to the public announcement regarding the variant, I think uh, I thought at the beginning, based on very skimpy evidence, that it would be likely to be more communicable, more intrinsically spreadable. And there are two ways it can do that, at least two ways. One is that the virus itself intrinsically can spread more easily from person to person. Let's say because it has a better ability to bind to receptors in your nose. So a variant that can bind more easily to receptors in your nose, that variant would spread more easily from me to you than a variant that otherwise identical variant that couldn't bind as easily to the receptors in your nose. And 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 this is an intrinsic property of the pathogen. It's measured by something known as the R naught, the R sub zero, which is the basic reproduction number, which is the number of new cases you get in a non-immune, you know, naive, immunologically naive, normally interacting host population. And the original R0 for the original Wuhan strain of the virus was three. Each case gives you three new cases. And so One reason the Omicron variant may be more spreadable is because, in fact, it has a higher r naught. like the r naught for Delta was the Delta variant was six compared to the original Wuhan strain, which was three. But another reason the Omicron variant could be more spreadable is because of its ability to evade your immune system. In other words, it can spread amongst the immune previously immunized because they had previous infection or vaccination and also spread among the people who were unvaccinated and previously unexposed, and therefore it has a bigger pool of people compared to a variant that doesn't have this capacity for immune escape. So there are at least two reasons, intrinsically higher spreadability and the ability to evade immunity that can make the Omicron variant more spreadable. And they're both mixed in. It's difficult to know. We're going to have to wait for some studies and some analyses. Both are true, I think. And I think this variant from a combination of these properties will be as spreadable as Delta or more spreadable. So that's bad. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of how deadly it is, it's difficult to know, and I'm quite confident about the first prediction. The second prediction is, well, how deadly is it? Is it, is it in fact very mild? And here it's also difficult to be certain because the, this variant is arriving on the scene. We can't do a head-to-head experiment. You know, the original variant, the Delta variant and the Omicron variant in, in naive, you know, people, unexposed individuals that are interacting normally, let's just infect a bunch. We can't do that. So the problem, for example, in South Africa data, South Africa is a much younger country than, than England or, or the America, United States and younger people are less likely to die when exposed to this anyway. So if we're seeing a lot of people get sick but not many people die in South Africa, maybe it's simply because they're younger. It's got nothing to do with the virus being more benign. That's part of it. Another part is, um, well, maybe they, in South Africa, many of them maybe had previous immunity, not so much from in, fa- in vaccination, only about 25% of the South Africans are vaccinated, mm-hmm. but a lot of them are naturally immune from having previous infection. So it's kind of hard to, it's a moving target then. How can we know how deadly is the virus intrinsically when most of the victims are all, already have partial immunity and can fight it off to some extent? So that's tricky too. So it's hard to know. And then, but on the other hand, about 20% of South Africans have HIV and are immunocompromised. That makes it easier for them to be killed by the virus. So all of these things are very complicated. It's hard to know for sure. I think there's a range of possibilities. I think that this variant is, is, is as deadly as Delta or less deadly. So it's as spreadable as Delta or more spreadable and as deadly as Delta or less deadly, probably less deadly. I think it's probably more benign. Than Delta, and I, but I don't think it's trivial. I don't think we know that yet. It, it may be, uh, but I don't. I don't think we know that yet. It's a little too early, and I think we'll be able in about a month. We'll have a sense if deaths are really spiking in, let's say, European settings, high vaccination, uh, relatively well healthy individuals. That'll be bad uh, if deaths start spiking. Right now, we're seeing case cases spiking, but that's not as worrisome. And then, and then the last thing is, is to what extent does it evade the vaccines? And we now have much more data in the last two weeks than we did before uh, using in vitro studies of, of, uh, of how effectively uh, does a serum from antibodies in the bloodstream of people who are immune, how effectively does it neutralize the Omicron variant? And, it, and, and that serum is about 25 to 40 times less effective But that doesn't map linearly to a decrement in vaccine effectiveness. So, for the original strain, the vaccine had, in the original trials and in the follow-ups, the vaccine was about 95% effective at preventing death if you were infected. Mm -hmm. That fell to about 90% with Delta. Some people think this will fall to about 75% uh, with with Alpha, I'm sorry, with Omicron, Mm -hmm. even though the immune serum number is a much bigger decrement that I just mentioned, 25 to 40 times, but it's not a linear relationship. And some people think it could fall as low as 30%. In other words, the efficacy of the vaccine will drop from 90% for Delta all the way to 30% for uh, Omicron. But I think that's only in the case of people who've had two shots, not three shots. I think if you've got three shots, uh, you'll be quite well protected. Uh, against the Omicron variant. That's what I think is going to wind up being the case.
0: Okay, so even, even if it does start getting bad, uh, it looks like a, a lot of countries are really trying to get ahead and get those those boosters out. So it, it might only be a, a huge problem at a, if it does get really bad in maybe December, January, early February.
1: Well, yes, but see, here's the other thing you need to realize that from the point of view of how bad is it for our society. In terms of number of deaths, a more spreadable virus can be worse for us than a more deadly virus because a more spreadable virus can more rapidly infect a greater number of people. Right. So we may see our hospitals filling up just because Omicron is spreading so so easily, uh, even if it were much less deadly. Uh, we just have a larger denominator. You know, it's a it's a smaller piece of a bigger pie is a bigger piece than a bigger piece of a small pie, basically, and so. Um, So that could happen, and there's a lot of concern in states around the country, especially some northern states, that their hospital systems are already quite full now with the Delta variant and the typical winter wave we were having anyway, that the Omicron variant is just going to make things worse. Um, And again, it's too early to be certain. So everything we're saying about Omicron, these are provisional guesses based on a complex amount of some, some in vitro studies, some early epidemiological studies, some anecdotes, some genetic studies. Just some experience with these things, you know, these are guesses, the educated guesses people are taking. But we'll know, you know, within a month or two, we're going to begin to have some epidemiological studies that will, you know, really shed light on how good are the vaccines. You know, how deadly is the virus and what circumstances does it kill you and so on. But you're right. If, if Omicron were much more benign and mm-hmm. just gave you the sniffles, then the idea is, and this is something I write about in Apollo's Arrow in Chapter 8, I'd written about a long, I wrote a book a year or so ago, more, approximately a year ago, is that then everyone would be exposed, you see, to a mild variant of of, uh, SARS-CoV-2, get some immunity from that, but not run much risk of death. In a way, that's a good outcome, if that were to happen. Uh, Now, you would still run some risk of death, so that's not good. But if the alternative is to be exposed to a deadly variant, a more deadly variant, or a benign variant, then it's sort of you know it's like getting natural natural vaccination in a way uh, by getting a kind of a more benign variant. But it's too early to know this.
0: Okay, you know, f- fair enough. And uh, one thing <clears throat> that has looked a bit hopeful, uh, apart from the vaccines, is that there's the the antiviral medications that are yes to, to come out. Uh, what can you tell us about those and um that you know just from reading the general news reports the the figures are looking uh very favorable but you know what ha, what what's your what's your perception of them and when do you think they'd actually be able to be distributed to any reasonable degree
1: so generally speaking we have many antibiotics for the treatment of bacterial pathogens and and when when new bacteria infect humans let's say these were bacteria that previously infected animals. So they're zoonotic diseases and they leap to humans. We have lots and lots of classes of antibiotics. And and as a general rule, I would say that bacterial infections are much, much, much more treatable than viral infections. Whereas with viruses, we have many fewer, if any effective antiviral medications. And many of them are quite toxic compared to the antibiotics against bacteria, the antibacterial medications. So, uh, I was not very optimistic at the beginning of the pandemic that we would have many effective antiviral medications available for us to fight off the virus. That we would have it quickly, and I was very worried that any drugs you would have would be very toxic because they interfere basically with the the um, the um, genetic machinery of your body. These uh, these antiviral drugs that often. But I've been really surprised. First of all, we've had a couple of, uh, very rapidly, in July of 20, um, 2020, already by then, we had the recovery trial in England showing that uh, that dexamethasone was very effective at lowering mortality of seriously ill people by about 20%. Dexamethasone is a very long, cheap, longly available, every doc knows how to use it, uh, uh, steroid medication, quite safe. And um, it, was a, it was a miraculous benefit that we were able to find quickly, existing drug. And the recovery trial, this uh, a consortium of trials being done in England looked at a lot of other things like hydroxychloroquine and so on. No evidence, was no material evidence was found for the benefits of hydroxychloroquine and many other drugs. They were looking at, could we repurpose other drugs? Same by the way with ivermectin, I, I don't, the evidence regarding the benefits of ivermectin are not persuasive in my view. And both of those drugs, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, can cause problems. But dexamethasone, we have really good randomized control trials. It's great. We also had a very nice study that was just published, a couple of randomized control trials, weirdly, about a serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Basically, an antidepressant drug, fluvoxamine, I think is its name. Which also has quite good uh, f- efficacy, very you know, widely available, r- relatively safe, relatively inexpensive uh, drug, a short course could be helpful. And that's I was looking for the randomized control trial. That was why there was a long silence and I couldn't find the paper. It's back here behind me somewhere on these stack of documents. Uh, and that was just published a few months ago. But now, amazingly, we are having... And then over the summer, remember there was all this excitement and hype about remdesivir, but that the randomized control trial was really feeble. Honestly, the results of the that trial and regarding its benefits really did not were underwhelming. But now we have this uh, Paxlovid study, this new drug from Pfizer, uh, sort of uh, which is an antiviral drug. It's a protease inhibitor, which showed remarkable efficacy in um, in the treatment of of um, moderately severe, severe, uh, a COVID infection, COVID and, uh, uh, like 89 or 90% efficacy in terms of reducing the risk of death. Uh, and i was trying to find the numbers here. Uh, I forgot exactly what it was like, uh, you know, some, uh, the, the randomized control trial had about a thousand patients in it, 500 in the treatment arm, fi- I'm making up the numbers. These are approximate 500 in the control arm. And I think there were like, uh, f- I want to make up a number like 50, hospitalizations or deaths in the placebo arm and five in the, in the control arm. I mean, just an amazing difference. These are approximate numbers. And uh, so that's really quite persuasive. Now, how were we able to make the drug so fast? Well, first of all, it turns out that a lot of the preliminary work had been done for other viruses and even for SARS one in, in 2003. So we had a lot of kind of work in the can And uh, they were able to reactivate a lot of that work and make very rapid progress. But even so, I'm not yet utterly convinced about the safety of this drug Mm -hmm. uh, because of its mechanism of action and the way these antivirals work. So I'm a little worried. I mean, I used to prescribe antiviral medicines when I was active, you know, when I was practicing as a doctor. It's been a long time since I've written prescriptions, but I used to. Uh, And, you know, I'm I'm, uh, reverent. respectful of the toxicities that are associated with antivirals. So we don't have a huge experience yet with this drug, but definitely the efficacy data is there. So I'm amazed at the the fact that the armamentarium is rising. I still don't think it's a wise strategy for the average listener to say, well, I won't get vaccinated because I'm worried about the vaccine. Mm. (laughs) And then if I get sick, I'll get these drugs (laughs) because these drugs, you know, First of all, if you get sick, you still might die. You run the serious risk of death, especially if you're middle-aged or older. And the drugs are not benign either. There's certainly no more benign than, uh, than the vaccination. Anyway, that's a long-winded answer uh, to your question. I hope an answer.
0: <laughs> certainly an answer. Uh, it, well, you mentioned the vaccine, so let, let's switch to that. I just have one little thing I want to ask you about the vaccine that also will help to transition to talking about the, the, the social ills that we, we've seen throughout the pandemic. Uh, just if you had to just pose it to, to somebody, just somebody in, in the general public and, and I, I can understand how, you know, maligning like bigger figures who are spreading bad information about the vaccines uh, can, you know, get the, the rotten tomatoes thrown at them and, and all that. But it, for me, it doesn't seem very helpful to really throw regular people who are unwilling to get vaccinated for whatever reason it might be, you know, throwing them into the ditch. Uh, so if, if you were to just try to succinctly put the case to somebody, you know, who hasn't been vaccinated, you know, why they should get vaccinated, uh, I'm wondering uh, how you would try to put that across to them.
1: Well, people who are vaccine hesitant are very, very heterogeneous. Some of them have wild conspiracy theories which are plainly false, you know, that Bill Gates has put like little magnets in the vaccines and is going to track us or something. Some of them are using their vaccine behavior to signal their political identity, which I think is unnecessary and foolish, frankly. Uh, You know, I love the fact that we live in a plural democracy and we have people with different political persuasions and my fellow citizens range. In their political beliefs, and I love the fact that the way we in America resolve our disputes is not by force of arms. Thank goodness we vote, and uh, that is what the founders gave us. And 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 I wouldn't want to live in a society where everyone had the same political views. That would probably not be a healthy society. But I, and, but I don't. Having said that, I don't think you need to signal your political beliefs. You can you can signal them with bumper stickers or lawn signs. You don't have to signal them with whether you get vaccinated. That's a wrongful conflation. You you know you shouldn't. You shouldn't bring your politics into your healthcare. You know, you're getting you're getting you're choosing your healthcare based on ideally the most rational approach to what's best for your health, not with, oh, members of my tribe do get vaccinated or members of my tribe don't get vaccinated. That's not, in my view, healthy. But some fraction of the people who are vaccine hesitant are also like that. Another group have what I would describe as somewhat more rational concerns. You know, they're like, well, the vaccine has been uh, was hastily made. And that's true. Or there's never been an mRNA vaccine used in humans before. Well, that's true. I mean, those are legitimate questions. And I think they warrant serious answers, you know, to the best we can. And here I think you need to be humble and say, well, here's what we know. Here's why I given what we know I am or am not concerned about whatever it is that you're concerned about. And, uh, you know, I certainly I know a lot about this topic. I'm a doctor and I and I know a lot about. Epidemiology, and I looked at all of these studies and I vaccinated myself and every member of my family. And I didn't do it because of politics. I did it because it's a miracle that we have vaccines. Because here's, here's what's going to happen. Especially given the Delta variant and other more communicable variants of the virus, pretty much everyone on the planet, unless you're a hermit living in a mountain or unless you're exceptionally lucky, Will either be infected with this virus or be vaccinated. Those are your choices. And if you're infected with the virus, on average, your risk of death is about 1% from the virus. And uh, now it varies. If you're young, of course, your risk is much lower. If you're my age, it's about 1%. If you're 70s or 80s, it's about 20% 20% chance of dying if you get infected. That's, that's just bad. bad.
0: Then there's, there's long COVID and all that jazz as well.
1: Yeah, well, there's an addition to that. You're absolutely right. Even actually distinct from long COVID is the issue. You have short or long COVID and then you recover, but then but you don't die, but your body has been scarred by the virus. You could have some disability, your lungs, you, you couldn't be able to walk as well anymore. Or, or you you could have cardiac problems or neurologic problems or, or kidney problems, for example, where the virus could affect your kidneys adversely, lead to some, lead to some renal insufficiency and so on. Probably about a million Americans are going to die of this virus, maybe more now. And, um, and this is a prediction I made, by the way, very early in the pandemic. And people scoffed at that, but this is proven true. And uh, probably 5 million Americans will be disabled by the virus. It's huge. So your choices are to be infected with the virus and run the risk of death or disability or to be vaccinated. And if you're vaccinated, your risk of death from the vaccine is about one in a million. You're very, on average, very unlikely to die just from being vaccinated. So to me, that's like a no brainer. You know, that's like you want it out of a hundred versus one million chance of death from, you know, exposure to something, you know, I mean, I look at those odds and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to get vaccinated. And I recognize that there might be some concerns about it, et cetera, but the alternative is to be infected. Those are your choices. So that's a little bit how I would phrase it to, to some people. Um, and, and you should also see didn't someone else observed this, but it's true. A lot of these people who are, complaining about the vaccines, are using their, you know, cellular phones and their computers to do so. Well, who invented the cellular phones and the computers? How how are those things made? They're made because of 200 years of scientists and engineers working, discovering electricity and how it works, you know, and metallurgy and how to fabricate things out of metals, which takes a lifetime to become a, to, to be able to make things well out of metals, uh, uh, invent the transistor and invent m- uh, microchips to manufacture microchips takes whole factories, not just of the designers, but the people, the men and women who manufacture these chips, they wear special booties and all of this had to be figured out in a special gowns when they do all of this work. All of this has required the ingenuity and effort of scientists and engineers and, and, uh, and workers for hundreds of years. To get to the point where we can have these technologies, which we then just use and we think they're magic. Isn't it amazing? Well, vaccines are like that. Same exact thing. It took hundreds of years of scientists and and doctors and and research subjects who volunteered and all the workers who make these vaccines in these factories. A huge amount of human effort and suffering and knowledge and money and sweat to produce these miracles. So why you would, you would use one thing and you would think, oh, you, you, you say, what do the scientists know using a device that scientists made? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know it's, it's, it's kind of nonsensical as far as I'm concerned. So, so that would be a little bit, you know, sort of my take on, on this. Also, it's interesting. Anti-vaxxers used to be primarily on the far left, and now we're seeing a lot of anti-vaxxers on the far right, which is kind of an odd. It used to be all magic rocks and everything. You know, there were people on the far left who are, you know, uh, sort of very holistic and natural was one of the ideologies. Others who were very suspicious of big pharma from a left hand point of anti-capitalist, for example. You know, you had a lot of people on the far left kind of anti-vax. Now you've got them on the far right as well. I mean, it's like I just wish we could get a more sensible middle in this country to just pragmatically, you know, address our problems. With as little ideology as possible, honestly, I mean, there's a time for ideology. Don't get me wrong. For example, in tax policy, you know, or in uh, in uh, zoning rules or whatever. But you know, when we talk about things that I would think of as more technocratic, like vaccination, you know, I I think we should try to minimize ideology in certain domains.
0: And on that note, like, um, recently in a conversation, like to to sort of address. Uh, just the, the the mania that has gone on the the last year and a half. You you mentioned in another conversation. I can't remember if it's in the book or not. But um, during the Justinian plague, you're you're saying that yes. you know, people were throwing pots out the windows to, yes. to ward off the plague and, and, yes. you know, and all all that such. And, and so that it's it, it's it's prevalent that you just sort of get uh, mass rationality during these these sorts of incidents. So I, I'm I'm wondering like. It, in this time, like there's particular underlying issues. For instance, your former head of state, the 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 great orange goblin, was at the head of things uh, during the beginning of the pandemic, and so many issues came from that. Uh, there, there's the the geopolitical issues of the adversarial nature between China and the United States heated things up. Yeah, you, you really seen all the woke nonsense really bleed its way in, into the pandemic where you know you you can't do x y and z for the sake of lockdowns but all of a sudden if there's black lives matter protests not only should are, are those allowed to happen you need to encourage them uh and, and be supportive of them and and i i've seen all sorts of other uh woke idiocy bleed its way into uh messaging around the pandemic and so it was at these underlying issues particularly to this time but at the same point like I would imagine if it was the Cold War and you had the senile Brezhnev and senile Reagan running things that it might not go so great so are we in sort of a Sisyphean dilemma where you know if a big pandemic comes up that we're just bound to have a huge catastrophe
1: um yes and no so you're quite right to highlight the fact as I attempt to do, that there are certain social and psychological responses to plagues that are very human and that have been features of plagues for thousands of years. So one of them is this propensity to denial and lies during times of plague. People don't want to believe this calamity is happening. They deny it. Or there are a lot of lies about it, superstitions spread. And, um, and we've seen that in the United States, which is a, a bit surprising, I mean, that we in the 21st century, of with all our modern technology and wisdom and knowledge, we still are resorting, but it's very human. So in some sense, not surprising. And you mentioned the example, which I love, which is that, you know, I can't remember which plague it was. I want to say the plague of Justinian 1,500 years ago, where one of the observers said that, you know, it was a bubonic plague. Very serious, deadly uh, bacterial pathogen spread by rats and, and fleas mm-hmm. and with a very high mortality rate. You know, whole cities are wiped out. A lot of fear, of course, because of that. And he he joked, he said that, you know, a rumor went out in the city that if you threw, if you threw uh, terracotta pots from your second story windows and they crashed onto the street below, it would ward off the plague. And so he said, walking through the city, you were more likely to die from being <laughs> hit by a pot than, you know, from the plague. And uh and so the point was that there were superstitions then and there's superstitions now, you know, our superstition now is, you know, inject yourself with bleach or something. I mean, you know, the crazy that the former president actually suggested from uh, from the White House, you know, it's just nuts. So. Um, so, yes. So on the one hand, those are very common uh, denial and lies and, and then our features of, uh, of plagues. Now, I lost the thread because it was the other thing you said. Uh, like, Is, the, is there's just
0: sort of a determined. Sisyphean dilemma that we're we're going to find ourselves in, where it's just you know it's bound to happen that whatever the underlying issues are, oh before right, before a yeah. pandemic that they're just going to get exacerbated. Yes, yes, yeah. Like, so, so. Like, like like it was 1980, like you know having yeah yeah during a pandemic would be not so yeah
1: good. yeah yeah. So the point you thank you for reminding me. So the so the idea is on the one hand things are pretty consistent across time in the way plagues adversely affect our social fabric. On the other hand. This pandemic did strike us at a particularly distinctive moment in our history. Even, let's not forget where we were two years ago, before the plague. We had, we had century high levels of socioeconomic inequality, right? I mean, we were almost back to the time of the robber barons, where the very richest 1% of our society can control a huge amount of the wealth. Uh, the median American family has not made economic progress in the last 30 years, approximately. The bottom is really suffering, the bottom 50%. Mm-hmm. So that was already happening. We had huge political polarization, like at a 50 year high, you know, the right and left, we had a kind of, we had a kind of hollowing out of the political middle in our society, which is not healthy for our society. I think we make sounder policy in our more rational society when we have, you know, we have some political disagreements, but we kind of, you know, we, we, you know, we compromise, you <laughs> know, we get to some kind of sensible you know middle, for example. So we had those problems. We had a kind of, um, anti-elitism in our society, which had feathered into a kind of anti-scientism as well. That is to say, people thought scientists were some kind of elite hacks that were trying to pull the wool over their eyes. And you see that now a lot. There's all this, this, it's, it's not just skepticism about science, which is healthy, but a kind of disdain for, like, what do these guys know? Well, you know, damn it, I spent 30 years of my life learning what I'm telling you. 30 years, you know, I have Every hour of every day for 30 years, this is what I've been doing. And it's just like if I need a cabinet made or I need my car repaired or I need a surgery, you go to an expert. I mean, that's what you do in your society, you know? And, And there's a saying in sociology, a famous observation, which is one man's occupation is comprised of another man's emergencies. When you have a flood in your basement, it's a rare and catastrophic event for you. But you call an expert plumber who knows exactly what to do. And actually, his job is composed of your emergencies, right? For him, it's an ordinary day work, but for you, it's a disaster. And this person is an expert and they come to your house and they know what to do and they fix the problem. And you gladly give them money in our capitalist society. That's how it's organized, right? And meanwhile, someone else is acquiring expertise in something else. So, this idea that On the one hand, I think it's okay to be skeptical. You know, maybe the plumber's lying to you and telling you that there's a more serious problem than there is. He's trying to get more money from you. Maybe, but usually not. You know, 95% of these plumbers are going to come to your house and say, this is the problem. Here's what it'll cost to fix it. And they fix the problem. And they're not stealing from you. And same goes with doctors. Yes, there's going to be an occasional charlatan and quack and whatever. Yes, but... Most of the time they're going to say, you know, here's my knowledge, here's my experience, here's what I believe is the truth, here's why this is important. Anyway, so being a little skeptical is fine and is healthy, but at the same time, I think this idea that what do they know and that your personal experience is just as valid, which incidentally, this idea that your lived experience is as good as, you know, that everyone has my truth. Mm -hmm. No, there's one truth. And what I find fascinating is, is that this belief in my truth is very ascendant on the far left and on the far right now. People think that, oh, very well, you much. know, yeah, which is which is wrong. Yes, of course, you're entitled to your own experience, your own, your own beliefs. You've had your own life experiences. Yes, of course, and they're important. I'm not saying they're false, mm-hmm. but I'm just saying you thinking that, oh, your aunt got COVID and nothing happened, and therefore you're concluding that COVID is a mild disease as compared to a scientist who has studied thousands of cases or done laboratory experiments and come to a different conclusion than you No, you know you're well, not right
0: well if you have if you have schizophrenia you know my truth is there's satanic goblins in my cucumber patch yes like
1: but, yeah yeah that's uh, not correct anyway so on the one hand it's okay to be skeptical of scientists but on the other hand i don't think you should just think that they're they're fools and they know nothing and so on that is not a rational uh, conclusion and especially so I think what what you should do is you should ask scientists for their evidence you know so if someone says well here's what i believe you say well what is what is the basis for that belief you know, what's your evidence for that belief and um, and evaluate that evidence you know now it's also important to recognize expertise because you know for example I know very little about how cars, I mean, I know the, some of the physics about how cars work. I know about internal combustion engines. I understand about exploding gases and pistons moving and transferring the force. I know a little bit about how gears work and how you, you know, work. I understand how friction is used for how brakes function. You know, I, I understand some of the physics of all this. But I am completely unable to re- repair my car, like literally can do almost nothing. You know, I can put the fluids, can replace the washer fluid and the gas and so on in my car. I can replace a tire, I'm proud to say. But I cannot repair a car or, or figure out what's wrong. If the engine doesn't start, I open the hood, I, I, I can't figure out why the engine's not starting. Well, thankfully, there are people in our society who know how to do that, and I and I will say thank you for. And when they come, and say, "What's wrong with the car?" And they say, "Well, here's what's wrong." And I say, "Well, how do you know that?" And they explain. to You say, "Well, it's making this noise. You hear it more on the left, than on the right." They give you the broken parts and they show you. I took off the carburetor. If you open it up, look here. Here's the problem. And and to me, this is miraculous. Uh, you know. And so, so yes, I mean, I, I evaluate their evidence. I mean, one guy comes and says. Your car is broken and it's $10,000 to repair. And another guy, and here's why, you know, another guy says, well, no, it's actually a $500 repair. And here's why And you listen to the guys and you make a decision. But most of the guys are honest and they know what they're doing. And, and, you know, and, uh, and, 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 and you can, even if you don't know how, how to repair cars, you can interrogate them. And, and by which I don't mean like interrogate them brutally. What I mean is like, you can ask them some questions and, um, And form an opinion. He's telling me this is the problem. Here's his evidence for why he thinks it's the problem. You'll say, well, it's making this kind of noise and it started slowly and now it's fast. And uh, and actually, I see that when the engine doesn't start to turn over at all, it means it's one of these five problems. Whereas it turns over some, it's one of these other five problems, whatever the hell they tell you. And then, you know, you, you, you say, OK, yes, thank you. I mean, anyway, I'm, I'm giving too long on the metaphor, but you understand. I can see yeah. uh, the, our listeners can't see that we can see each other, but I can see from your nodding, you understand you get my, the metaphor and maybe you agree with it too. I don't know, but uh, most certainly you know, to, to, an, to an extreme degree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had, a, I had a, a, a man here who built an addition to my house recently, a wonderful a, a, a master carpenter. Uh, his first, his uh, first name was Kevin. Anyway, he's a wonderful man. And uh, he was building this thing up. And at some point I was like, well, how do you know it's not going to collapse? You know? And, and, uh, because I was worried, you know, like, how is this known? And of course there had been an engineer who had spec'd it out, but in addition to the engineer, the carpenter was able to say, I have built a thousand of these houses. When we use beams in this way and whatever, you know, it's fine, you know, and I'm like, okay. You know, he gave a good explanation. He's built a lot of these houses, you know, I believe him. You know, I, I have not built a lot. I mean, I've, I have worked as a carpenter when I was young, but I don't know anything about building houses. Anyway, yeah. that's my point.
0: Oh, I, I got to let you go here right away, but yes. I, I'll, I'll just just note real quick on, on on that topic that it's I think it's even a little bit worse than that because even on matters where it becomes you know a little less scientific and more policy based, like around NPIs and, and and just what what the government's doing. Uh, it just seems that the 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 madness is 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 getting even worse. Like one thing I, I see popular now is that comparing various quarantines and lockdowns to the Holocaust is becoming fashionable now yes. among various nutcases, which is, I find quite disturbing. But um,
1: no, I don't yeah. think there's some. I've been reading about this a little bit that there's some dark reaches of the internet where people think that this the government actions in response to the virus are all a conspiracy to deprive us of our freedoms okay. by having some kind of fascistic state
0: as they twirl their monocles.
1: Yes, this is not very credible. Um honestly, and so I do think it's important when implementing a lot of these inter- public health interventions to weigh the costs and the benefits. And And to take into account the social consequences. And, you know, for example, when you shut down businesses to reduce viral transmission, you put people out of work. And when you put people out of work, poverty can kill you. And so if you're trying to save lives by reducing viral transmission, it's only fair to ask, well, how many lives am I losing by by those interventions? Mm -hmm. And and you should do the calculus. You should do the calculations and you should be able to defend it. You can say, like, yes, it sucks that we're doing this. But we have to as a nation. It's the same like when you go to war and you conscript you conscript the citizenry against their will, and you say, "Yes, we recognize some of you are going to die, and we've we've drafted you." But we're doing that because many more will die if we don't. And you know that's a harsh utilitarian calculus. Public health is that way, unfortunately. It's a, and by the way, it's the same with vaccines. To recommend vaccination is not to blithely ignore. The dangers of vaccination, yes, vaccines can occasionally cause serious adverse outcomes. But the reason we invented vaccines, we humans, 200 years ago, was because it's better to be vaccinated with fewer deaths. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and usually the threshold is if a vaccine, you know, it, it, it has less than one out of 100,000 or the usual standard is less than one in a million serious adverse reactions or deaths, that's seen as safe. One out of a million people who gets the vaccine will die. That's awful, but will save 10,000 lives. And, you know, if you were a policymaker, what decision would you make? This is the way, unfortunately, for better or worse, that utilitarian policy is made. And this is not to say it's not, you know, if you're like there was a there was a person in England who got the AstraZeneca vaccine, who died from a very rare uh, thrombotic complication. And um, and his family came forward and said, even though our loved one died. He would have said, and we say, that vaccination is the right course of action. We just happen to get unlucky.
0: Yeah, everything's just a series of trade-offs. Yes. Uh, anyway, we should probably wrap up, but I just want to go over the book real quick. Um, I have the old 1.0 uh, hardcover, but you have a fancy new paperback out. I was, I was just wondering, I haven't looked into this yet. Is there any new yes, uh, fancy details you, you, you threw into the, the, the shiny new paperback?
1: Yeah, so the paperback, which just came out a month ago or so, has um, a new preface and a new afterword and also some minor edits throughout the book, not too many, a few updates. And um, in the afterword, I talk a little bit about the origin of the virus and some research my lab has done onto the timing of the emergence of the virus. We were able, using some data to push back the uh, likely patient zero to the beginning of October of 2019. Um, And um, anyway, there's a bunch of stuff in there that may interest people if they've enjoyed our conversation.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Nicholas.
1: Thank you, Joshua. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the show, everybody. There'll be more episodes coming for you in the future. Be sure to check out endcoronavirus.org and worldhealthnetwork.global for more information on the organization thanks to michelle for make good together for doing the graphics for the show and a huge thanks to tracy the noble producer of the show if you listen to this show on either youtube or podcast format well they are available on both and be sure to like and subscribe and comment on those all the best till next time